It's time for Security Now. Steve Gibson is here. The latest security news. Uh, plus, uh, he looks at the very challenging uh, problem of how do you get enough randomness into your random number generator. We'll talk about securing entropy next on Security Now. Netcasts you love. From people you trust. This is Twit. Bandwidth for Security Now is provided by Cashfly at C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y dot com. This is Security Now with Steve Gibson. Episode 456, recorded May 20th, 2014. Harvesting Entropy. Security Now is brought to you by ShareFile. Enhance your workflow. Send files of almost any size easily and securely with Citrix ShareFile. Try ShareFile today for a 30-day free trial. Go to ShareFile.com, click the microphone, and enter Security Now. And by Harry's. For guys who want a great shave experience for a fraction of what you're paying now, go to Harry's.com. Get $5 off your first purchase by entering the code SECURITYNOW when you check out. And by IT Pro TV. Are you looking to upgrade your IT skills or prepare for certification? IT Pro TV offers engaging, informative tutorials streamed to your Roku computer or mobile device for 30% off the lifetime of your account. Go to itpro.tv slash security now and use the code SN30. It's time for Security Now, the show where we protect you and your loved ones online, your privacy, your safety, your security with this guy right here, the explainer-in-chief himself, Mr. Stephen Tiberius Gibson. Hey, Steve. He's pointing at hey, himself. Leo. <laughs> He's got his Aries blade. Did you shave today? I, I noticed no uh, more goatee. You're going to be uh, mustached only, yes? Actually, I shaved before Jenny's daughter's wedding. Because I actually how long ago was that? <laughs> that was this Saturday. So you know, I, I have a nice little. The best thing about Jenny is she doesn't mind a little. She doesn't mind the scruff. Little, oh, she doesn't. She she says, "Oh, don't shave, don't shave." It's like, okay, where did you come from? You were just like, that's just <laughs> you're the perfect. perfect woman. Yeah, but I and so she didn't want me to shave before the rehearsal dinner and wedding. I said, "Oh no, no, you know this is for all of them, not for you, Jen. I appreciate the way you are, but but boy, I tell you, I hate shaving." But well, I'm not we'll, get, we'll explain now. this a little we'll, later. We'll, we'll yes. do a commercial we'll a little explain, bit later. Explain, Steve. Have, it's so funny because when Steve likes a product, he doesn't hesitate. It's like I'm going to tell you about this, and it, whether it's a, a, a program on TV, a razor blade, whatever, I'm going to tell you about this. So that's good. Yeah. Well, and my success has been. I mean, I get all this feedback from people saying, "Oh, thank you, thank you, thank you." So. It's like, hey, I want to represent what I find and, yeah, and yeah. help people to we know. Lo- you so, know, you're a trusted uh, curator for us, and so we like to know. Well, and, Speaking and of which, what are you be- wearing in your ears for headphones these days? It, uh, I think they're... Are those the Shures? They're the Shures E5C or something like that. I can't really remember, but I've, I, I love them. They're just great. Yeah, they're really good. I'm wearing them, too. So we, as promised, we're going to talk this week. Our main topic is the on the, where, where, where the code meets the pavement, um, real-world challenges to securely harvesting entropy, even on platforms, as our last question of last week's Q&A brought up, where the platform may not have good sources of entropy. How do we solve that problem? 
Um, the code is all written. I posted the source uh, through my Twitter feed a couple hours ago, and it's also down lower in our show notes. You can bring it up if, at some point when I'm talking about this if you're curious. But we have some, you know, not any dramatic news, but some things worth talking about. Of course, Firefox and Mozilla announced their support for DRM video, which caused a lot of controversy, at least in my Twitter feed. So I wanted to talk with you a little bit about that. Uh, the interesting news that China has banned the use of Windows 8. Uh, a Swiss-based end-to-end encrypted email solution everybody is asking about. Uh, Ladar Levinson has maybe said the last thing he's going to say. And while it, se- it seemed very repetitious to me, I really liked the way he summed it up. Um, then there was the news of a disturbingly effective second factor authentication bypass Uh-oh. and the somewhat disturbing reactions of the various major industry players' reactions to it. Uh, the news of that everyone who knows I'm interested in, in entropy sent, which was how a smartphone camera could be used to harvest entropy. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then a little quick update. We have some miscellaneous stuff. Uh, an update on Squirrel and Spinrite, and then we'll get into our topic. So lots of, you know, one of our big potpourri episodes. Let's see how much we can cram in. It strikes me that uh, it's people who've never heard this show before uh, are listening. They start listening, and it sounds like English right up to a point. And then all of a sudden, you sound like you're speaking English, but (laughs) it's kind of what harvesting entropy. I don't what what are we talking about? What's going on here? It's funny because when I when I first came back into Jenny's life, she would have the podcast on on her smartphone, and you know her with her and her yoga girlfriends were standing around and they were saying, "What is that?" And she'd say, "That's that's Steve. my boy," and and she, and they said, "Well, you have no idea what he's talking about. Why are you listening?" To it him? sounds like English words. In fact, yeah. I'm pretty sure they are, but I. And they said, there was this point we're talking about shaving and headphones, very common, mundane things. Everybody understands. Then suddenly Steve says, and by, and then we're going to talk about harvesting entropy. And it's like, I'm hearing words. I understand the words. I don't understand what he's talking about. So uh, your reason you harvest entropy is to make a better random number generator. And this turns out to be a very important thing for encryption and security of all kinds, uh, not just video gaming. And so he's going to talk about a clever little thing he's discovered. I yeah, you don't it. want any – if you're going to have mist in your video game, you don't want any lines running through right. it. It's got to be truly really random, yeah. Blows the whole illusion. That's a yeah. good example. Uh, you know, misty stuff has to be uh, totally uh, uh, yeah. random, noise. Yeah, because we, we are exceedingly good at picking out patterns. patterns. Yeah. That's one of the things we do. Yeah. And so some so some simple tests for entropy, for randomness, is just to plot it. Put it on a 2D or a 3D plot and see if it looks like, you huh. know, stat- static right. from when you're you know, when the aerial used to get disconnected on your old analog television or do you see like, you know, the famous example is the picture of the penguin. You even though it's all Obscured, you that you can look at it and go, oh well, wait, the penguin is still there. So it's like, uh, and once again, we're talking about something. People are going, what? What penguin? It was English. It really was, and then it wasn't. But it was. But it's strange. Hey, let me tell you about one thing people do not know how to do very well, and that is share files in business nowadays. When you uh, are sending an email, very, very frequently, it's attached. 
There's a file attached. There's a document, a contract, a presentation, a spreadsheet. And as we have talked about on this show many times, attaching files to email is really a bad idea for for the obvious security reason. That's the one of the main ways viruses and spear phishing and targeted attacks get spread is through email. But also, it's just, you know, it's inefficient. You're going to get bounce backs because most email uh, uh, receivers are not going to be able to handle big files. And a lot of times these are very big files nowadays. Um, it uses bandwidth uh, in in appropriate ways. I mean, and it's not it's not secure. It's not it's public. It's like sending a postcard. We talk a lot about ShareFile. This is a, a product from Citrix. These guys really know business. They're probably one of the most important business software providers. And they've ShareFile solves this problem. It's fast. It's easy to use. It's, it's secure. In fact, if you use Outlook, they have a great Outlook plugin that makes it very simple. What you'll do is is you're going to get a secure link, an HTTPS link that you can share via the email. Your client, your customer, your colleague will get that link. They'll click it. They will see a uh, uh, your company page. It looks like you know it's got your logo and everything. A big download button. They don't have to sign up for anything. They just get the file. You'll be able to send files of almost any size without bounce backs. But you'll always have control over who can use it, who can see it. You decide who has access for how long. You'll get a notification when people open your files. Plus, you can password protect them for optimal security. They've got ShareFile mobile apps that allows you to access your files anywhere, anytime. I use the I was using the uh, the Desktop Sync app, and now I use the Desktop Sync widget, which makes it so easy to send a file. I just click a link, and boom, it's gone. Sign up today for a 30-day free trial. There's no obligation. Just go to ShareFile.com, click the microphone. At the top of the homepage, it's a little confusing because you see a bunch of buttons. Start your free trial. Free trial here. But the one we want you to use is right at the top there where it says podcast listeners. Click here and uh, fill in the offer code security now if you would. That way we'll get credit. They'll know you heard about it on Steve's show. Security now, one word. And do select the uh, industry that you're in because uh, ShareFile is HIPAA compliant, compliant with SEC regulations and finance and, and other uh, fields. So select the field you're in to make sure that it's customized to fit your needs exactly. Sharefile.com. Use the offer code security now. I use it every single day, and I know you're going to love it. Sharefile.com. All right, Steve, let's launch right in here. So um, it was a controversial move, and I know from having read a lot about this that the Mozilla folks – did not do this cavalierly and casually. They, you know, I mean, they really are working to keep their users' best interests in mind, but they essentially had no choice. When the World Wide Web Consortium, the W3C, decided to add digital rights management video into the HTML5 spec, which is really the big change, Firefox could say, you know, obstinately, no, we refuse to have, you know, anything to do with digital rights on the web. But all that would do is lose them users. I mean, if people wanted then to watch content controlled video they'd go to chrome or they'd go to ie or to safari or you know the commercial browsers and so i saw 
a, a real reaction to this news. It was last Wednesday, so just after last week's podcast, um, from from people who uh, were sending me tweets with basically their outrage. And I'm, I'm, I understand the position that Mozilla was in. And there's one other thing. And, and in Cory Doctorow's piece where he wrote about this, I mean, he was similarly, of course, disappointed. But he made the point that the, you know, and, the, and I have to mention too, the way this is done is that an Adobe of all people, <laughs> uh, DRM plugin is loaded uh, via the browser in order to do the decryption. And of course, the really annoying thing is this is all, it's all DMCA protected. So you get in, researchers get in trouble if they talk about vulnerabilities which are found in this. So whereas, you know, I mean, we spent the first four or five years of this podcast talking about PDF flaws and flash flaws from uh, from Adobe products, and now they're going to be the the source of the digital rights plugin that the various browsers are going to use to to bring this in. Um, but the the way and the significant feature of this for Firefox users is that the sandbox, the all important containment for this digital rights management plugin is open source and completely inspectable, which is not the case for any of the closed source commercial browsers. So, so Firefox users get something that, that, you know, admittedly, if you're going to watch digital, if, if, if you're going to watch um, DRM locked video through Firefox, this is going to be the way you're going to have to do it. If you want to watch Netflix content, for example, this is the way it's going to happen. Silverlight. Now, in the past, you would, if you wanted to watch Flash or Silverlight, I know, you know, if I wanted to use Mozilla to watch Netflix, I would go to Microsoft's site, download and install a plugin, and right. it kind of that took it that, that took it out of the hands of Firefox, and yes, it doesn't come this, with that plugin. So this is different. And and no no it's actually very very similar. It Firefox still doesn't come with it, but it dynamically fetches the plugin from an Adobe server on the fly as needed. So so I mean they're they're really doing everything they can to distance themselves from this to to provide the functionality. I mean and and also the World Wide Web Consortium. I mean essentially they were the first people to cave because they under pressure from the industry said, oh, okay, you know, don't we want web browsers to be able to deliver copy protected content? And I mean, yes, if everyone in the industry refused to do that, then I don't know, maybe, maybe we, 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 we'd get capitulation from the movie industry, but I don't think so. I just think that web browsers would not be allowed to play content. Well, but, of course, Internet Explorer, Safari, and Chrome all do support DRM, but they're commercial enterprises. Right. Mozilla is a not-for-profit organization. Right. And so, so I guess you could say, well, we're going to take the high road, but I, I think the upshot of that is, I don't know, only kind of... Aban people. Abandonment. 
Well, no, I mean by anybody... everybody, but the DRM hardcore people like Cory Doctorow, hardcore DRM right. uh, uh, haters. Right. Right. <sighs> um, and I have to say, Corey came off saying, "Well, you know, I mean, he understood it. It wasn't, it wasn't what he, the way he hoped to have things evolve." Earlier today, as I was thinking about this, I was sort of thinking to sum the, like, sum up so much of what we're seeing is the commercialization of the internet, and it was inevitable. This, right. this, when you look at it, this was what was going to happen. Yes, we all created it. We were there in the beginning. You know, I mean. Yes, all, you know, the techie pioneer types, but it wasn't, it just wasn't going to stay ours. I mean, we're going to have battles over net neutrality and over digital rights management and, and, you know, how this all gets carved up and who pays who to do what. It's, you know, as this wonderful network of ours gets commercialized. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I mean, uh, I have mixed feelings. Like Corey, I have mixed feelings about it. Yeah. Yeah, I, from from my standpoint, I'm a Firefox user. I I don't know that I'm watching any DRM content now, but I suppose if that becomes the thing to do, I would rather stay in Firefox than be driven off of Firefox to IE or Chrome or Safari. So, yeah. So I mean, I guess on balance, I'm glad that it's there. And I would imagine you there's a no doubt a setting you could set to turn that off to neuter Firefox of the ability to play that. So it'll be as if Mozilla did what the hardcore people wished if they wished to just say, no, I absolutely refuse to view digital rights managed content in my browser. I'm sure there's a setting for that. It raises issues in Linux and other uh, open source operating systems. Oh, it means you course. can't probably... Well, see, it's well, merely see, a mechanism to install DRM. It doesn't right. come with DRM, just the mechanism... I don't Correct. know. This might raise an issue with Linux distros as well. Yeah, I mean, you're right. The the licensing requirements of the of of the what the GNU project yeah. um uh yeah. can can prevent and, this kind yeah. of thing from happening. Well, yeah. and remember that that um the Mozilla guys had the same problem with was it MP4 or Og? I mean, you know, the, we've already had problems with the whole MPEG consortium and the the idea that you know just video compression is right. not Aug was no created reality. because it was unencumbered and MP3 was encumbered and so purest Linux distros did not include MP3 players they used Aug mm. that's why Mint came along which included all of the stuff like Flash and MP3 players uh, it was a version of Ubuntu with all of this stuff. And it became very popular very fast because you didn't have to install anything. Right. I don't know. Well, speaking of not installing anything, uh, Reuters this morning reported that in, in some weird document about energy conservation, it's not clear to anyone why it was in that particular document, but China's Central Government Procurement Center is now, they have issued a ban on installing Windows 8 on any government computers, which the only thing anyone can figure is that it's in, a, it's in protest over Microsoft's decision to stop supporting Windows XP, which still has a 50% share of Chinese desktops. Um, so Reuters said, quote, the official, uh, how do you pronounce that news agency? 
Zin, 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 Xinhua. Xinhua. The official Xinhua news agency said the ban was to ensure computer security after Microsoft ended support for its Windows XP operating system, which was widely used in China. So, uh, okay, uh, it's not clear to me unless they're saying, well, we don't want to make the same mistake again uh, because now we're smarting over the fact that we have no more updates for XP. So we don't want to be, you know, we don't want to continue with Windows 8. I mean, and arguably the the whole idea that that China is using Windows sort of seems like a, a fundamental problem you know why, I, if why i were they, them i'd be worried about the back doors exactly <laughs> else you know they do why, have a know, version of linux that is uh, uh created for and used by the chinese government right it's red and it's called it, red it, linux it, or something like that and so <laughs> so maybe that will be what they switch to is they're saying no no win eight we want to go it's time for us to cut the cord and uh and start using our own stuff it's just a mess. crazy yeah crazy um, I just got a kick out of that. That's like, okay, no more Win Eight. We're gonna we're, you know, we're gonna enhance our security by not installing Windows Eight. It's like, wait a minute, you know, Windows Eight is being supported. Uh, so the only thing I can figure is they're like saying, well, we're not gonna continue down this road. We're gonna force ourselves to a more difficult path. But you know, bite the bullet. Proton Mail. Now I wrote .com, but I think it's actually .net. Um, everyone's been talking about this. Um, and unfortunately, it's mostly a consequence of the headlines. Dot, by the way, it's dot .ch because it's Swiss. Oh, okay. Um, try protonmail.net. All see right. if that works. Yeah, because I think it did for me. Yeah. Um, the company is CH. Yes, and, and you're right. It is no, absolutely it's, Swiss. .net does not work. It's CH. Oh, okay. Okay, good. Um, so uh, the headlines are what caught everyone's attention – because of course the 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 various stories talked about you know the only NSA proof email. And I was like, oh, okay, here we go. Um, so I guess what I wanted to say was that end-to-end encryption is not hard. I mean, it's not difficult. We talked about this a couple of weeks ago in the context of the rumors that Google was experimenting with this idea. And you and I, Leo, discussed the the quandary that an advertising-based email service would have if, in fact, I mean, the only way they could meaningfully provide privacy is if they, too, cannot see into the content of your email. Yet we know that Google's cleverness is that they're able to read your email and present you with ads sort of in context, in vitro, right there along with the email tied into what the email is talking about. So if, but if Google's going to do end-to-end encryption, then what that means is you encrypt in the browser and all you're doing is they're the carrier of noise, a blob of random noise that they have absolutely no visibility into if this is to be meaningful. So so I guess I'm I mean I, I like the idea that this is being popularized, that 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 
everyone is saying, hey, this is what we need, end-to-end encryption. Though it does lock you into their system to some degree, although this is also something that they've thought through. They said, for example, we support sending encrypted communication to non-proton mail users via symmetric encryption. When you send an encrypted message to a non-proton mail user, they receive a link which loads the encrypted message onto their browser, which they can decrypt using a decryption passphrase that you've shared with them. So that that's sort of a, I mean, that's the necessary sort of half step you need if you're going to try to you know, bootstrap a basically a, a new proprietary email system into existence. Now, if you're going to send to non-proton mail people, then you need to decide, do I keep the email encrypted and the recipient gets a link which then allows their browser to retrieve this and then they have to decrypt it themselves? Or do I tell them, get a proton mail account and you know we can exchange privately point to point. So this is not advertiser supported. It's got all the buzzwords, all of the, the things that seem right. Um, they have got an Android and iPhone apps expected by the end of the summer. Uh, right now it's browser based. So I'm sure you could use the Android or iOS Safari, you know, browsers. Um, and Firefox and Android in order in order to do the same thing. So basically, you know, this is using JavaScript, which is downloaded on the fly, which is an increasing, you know, it's something that we see more and more. That's after all the way LastPass operates is the way they provide trust no one encryption is that JavaScript gets loaded into the browser. The encryption occurs in the browser all that goes out is encrypted. This is it's just not difficult to do. But but that's not the only problem. For example, claims that you know this is completely NSA proof and there's no way the NSA can get in there. Well, okay, first of all, there's an issue with metadata. That is, it may be that your blobs are encrypted, but the fact of blobs going back and forth is not being concealed. So you need to do something entirely different, like run, you know, route through Tor and a bunch of hops through the Onion Router network if you wanted to obscure the fact that you were connecting to Proton Mail, and doing things like you know comparing incoming and outgoing blobs. Maybe there is a way to associate traffic, you know, surrounding the the Proton Mail server farm. So. That's a concern. And then there's authentication because the person you're connecting to still has to prove that they are who they say they are to Proton Mail. Well, now that becomes a weak link because, again, if the NSA wanted to pretend that they were them, they probably could. They, you know, target some malware, get it into the computer, catch the person logging in. Now they have their credentials and end to end encryption is broken. So, so I just sort of wanted to, you know, to to acknowledge the fact that these guys existed, but that this is, first of all, not difficult. End-to-end encryption is acknowledged as 
what we're going to have to have, but it's only one part of the one one piece of the puzzle. We you also have to have there there there's a concern over metadata. That is the the fact of who you're communicating with still could leak, and authentication. You know, without absolutely knowing that no one but your intended target is able to decrypt this, it's just not safe. And so if you if you really want security, it means you write something in Word, you know, something not online, and then you do offline encryption, encryption using something like AxeCrypt, which is a perfect, clean, simple encryption tool. Then you email the blob to its recipient who, who takes it to a, di- a non-internet-connected machine that the NSA has a much harder time getting into, and you de- they decrypt it and read it there. I mean, it's not convenient, but it's secure. And so, again, we, we, we see all these efforts to give us the benefit of security and the convenience as if it was all just transparent. And it's very, very difficult to get that. Uh, we need, you know, really good authentication mechanisms in order to, you know, as part of that, in order to make it happen. And then there's, you know, still the, you know, did you just send email to that person? The whole metadata problem, even when the content is not known. Um, also today in The Guardian, uh, they, they, uh, you know, uh, Ladar Levinson had a relatively short piece. Their headline said, Secrets, Lies, and Snowden's Email, Why I Was Forced to Shut Down Lava Bit. And I, I double-checked the date. It's like, wait a minute, you know, how, how many times is Ladar going to tell us this? Because I'm sure he's told us already several times. But I did like his summary where he said, the problem here is technological. Until any communication has been decrypted and contents parsed, it is currently impossible for a surveillance device to determine which network connections belong to any given suspect. The government in this, in this instance argued that since the, quote, inspection of the data was to be carried out by a machine, they were exempt from the normal search and seizure protections provided by the Fourth Amendment. Well, that's horrifying. The, the idea that, that a court can say, well, search, search and seizure is only if people do it, not if machines do it. So, you know, obviously this didn't go to any Supreme Court challenge, but sooner or later, I mean, if this kind of reasoning is used you can imagine the EFF just blowing a gasket and saying, wait, wait a minute, you know, the, the Fourth Amendment certainly covers automated search and seizure. But in this case, you know, Ladar was, was standing in front of a court and that's what they decided. And then he finishes saying, more importantly for my case, the prosecution also argued that my users had no expectation of privacy, even mm. though the service I provided, mm. encryption, hurts. is designed for users' privacy. 
And it's like, again, how, how can the court say that? Just they declare it, and so that lets them off the hook? I mean, I mean, the prosecution said it because, of course, they want that to be the case. But, but the court should have said, wait a minute, of course there's an expectation of privacy. That's the whole reason they were using, you know, a, a service that specifically provided encryption. And finally, Ladar sums it up saying, if my experience serves any purpose, it is to illustrate what most already know. Courts must not be allowed to consider matters of great importance under the shroud of secrecy, lest we find ourselves summarily deprived of meaningful due process. If we allow our government to continue operating in secret, it is only a matter of time before you or a loved one find yourself in a position like I did, standing in a secret courtroom, alone, and without any of the meaningful protections that were always supposed to be the people's defense against an abuse of the state's power. So I thought that was a, that was a great summary. And, I mean, it really does. Wow. It, it is the chilling. It yeah, is the very chilling. chilling aspect. Yeah. Yeah. Speaking so, of chilling, this next one is really scary. Oh, boy. Okay. So this one also got a lot of attention. Uh, I'm sure it was the most tweeted to me story of the week uh, titled How I Bypassed Two-Factor Authentication on Google, Facebook, Yahoo, LinkedIn, and others. So this tells the story of a of a clever young Hacker. He, he said when he first encountered two-factor authentication when he was 16, two years ago. So now he's 18. And he's thinking about this. And he realizes there's a fundamental vulnerability in the implementation of just about everybody's two-factor authentication. It's a feature and it's a bug. So what's the problem? We already well understand, the, the listeners of this podcast, that security is about a, a chain of links and that obviously the, 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 the chain's net strength is only as strong as the weakest link. We, we run across this analogy because it, it fits and suits so many different instances where, where you know, really fancy encryption is like being communicated over a string with two tin cans and, and you can tap that. And so it's like, well, okay, sorry about that. Um, here, it's exactly what we have. What he recognized is that in all of these systems, the second factor code, now I, I, I should mention, these are systems where, where you're being asked to prove ownership of a second factor by them sending you a code. So texting is one technique where you've pre-registered your cell phone's number. And so they text you a code, which presumably only you can receive because you're holding the phone in your hand. And then you enter the code that was received in order to close the loop in back to the web browser and, and server to prove that, yes, I'm in possession of this device. So that's the loop. The problem is that 
all of these services allow that code to be delivered via voice to a user's cell phone. So they will phone you and speak it to you, and then you either have a good memory or you write it down, and then you enter it, or maybe you type it in as you're listening to it. But he recognized the way cell phone voicemail works is that if the caller is busy, it immediately goes to voicemail. And voicemail was never really designed with security in mind. And remember, we covered the story about all the celebrity voicemail hacking that happened a few years back um, because it turns out that, like, they left their pins defaulted to 0000 or there wasn't one, and you just entered their number into the voicemail box and out came their messages. So if the second factor is made to get stored in the user's voicemail box because the attacker has phoned them first so that they're on the phone when the attacker attempts to log into the website and say, yes, send this second factor to my, to my phone. That gets diverted to voicemail and the voicemail box is not secure. The attacker is able to dump the voicemail get the second factor, enter that, and defeat second factor authentication. So that's how it works. And it turns out he did it over and over and over with all of these systems. But he has to have the login, the password, and the phone number before this attack works. So That's absolutely true. Your so password has to have already been compromised, plus the associated voicemail number has to have been compromised. So that's a significant amount of effort before you could do this attack. Well, the assumption, of course, of of needing a second factor is that your username and password are compromised, that you're the victim well, of a phishing attack. no. Yeah, it, that's it, the only it, reason you need another factor it is adds, that they don't... It, it gives you two things you have to do. So you could have the second factor and not have the password. That's no good. It doubles your requirements for logging in. I wouldn't say that correct. it... I think it's not exactly correct to say it's designed to back up the password. It's 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 a mutual. It just get, makes it twice as hard. But so it's not right. insignificant to get the password is not... Uh, I mean, right, but 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 Leo, we're talking about security, and if it was impossible to get the password, then we wouldn't need a second factor. Right. The reason we need a second factor is there are all kinds of ways, like a keystroke logger, for example. These are designed right, to right, defeat, right. A, you know, a keystroke logger. And the phone they're able. Uh, yes, but it's often, and he makes the point. It's often very easy to get somebody's cell phone number. You know, you Google them, you they, they posted it on Facebook or it's listed in a directory somewhere, you know, or, you know, I mean, and it can be someone you know. So, so yes, I'm, I'm, it's not as if this defeats login completely, but they, the response, but this guy was able to demonstrate that the second factor can be defeated through this clever hack. And... What he got was a disturbing array of responses. He contacted Facebook security. And 
told them they had this problem. And their response was, we've temporarily disabled sending login approval codes via phone while we investigate further. Our plan is to re-enable the system when we can prompt users for interaction as part of the phone call, which should prevent us from sending codes to voicemail boxes. Perfect response. Plus, like, yes, that, you know, making, you know, instead of just dumping it into a blind voicemail box, just add some an, an, interaction, an interaction requirement so that you, you prevent this completely. LinkedIn was told. They said, thanks for notifying us of this issue before publicly disclosing it. While the potential impact for our members is limited, we have made the decision to temporarily turn off the voice option in our two-step verification setting. We're working with the third-party vendor we use for this service to implement a fix. After the fix is in place, we will evaluate turning the voice option back on. Once again, bravo. Google's response. Hey, thanks for your bug report. We've taken a look at your submission and can confirm this is not a security vulnerability in a Google product. <laughs> the attack presupposes a compromised password, and the actual vulnerability appears to lie in the fact that the telcos provide inadequate protection of their voicemail system. Please report this to the telcos directly. Regards, Jeremy. So Google blew him off and is still vulnerable, presumably, today. Well, but you can remove uh, the backup voicemail solution, which I just did. So, And I would, arg and I would argue anybody who's got that turned on, who's worried about this, should turn it off because Google does not have your back. Yeah. Google... Everybody else, well, except Yahoo, <laughs> Yahoo uh, never responded. Uh, th this hacker confirmed, he said, Yahoo's main services, which, al which allowed for two-factor authentication, were also vulnerable to the exploit I document above. In fact, the exploit to get into Yahoo accounts with two-factor authentication enabled is even more severe as the attacker does not fully risk the victim knowing about account access to login. 14 days from disclosure, Yahoo still hasn't mm. replied. Wow. And hence, they are still vulnerable to the two-factor authentication bypass. So Facebook and LinkedIn did exactly what we would, we would hope. Google blew it off and said, sorry, go talk to your telephone company. Of course, that's all the telcos in the world we're talking about, not, you know, one. Well, and some and do Yahoo it better than others. So. Never responded. Yeah. So, yeah. Uh, so you could turn off this in Google. I think Google, and I've said this for a long time, has a much more, a much bigger vulnerability, even if you have two-step turned on. Of course, because not everything supports two-factor authentication, um, they right. do so application-specific passwords. If, yep. I, if I somehow, if somebody got my application-specific password, until I revoke right. it, it can be used again and again. It's not my real password. It's, it requires no second factor, and it can be just used all the time. There's, it's not a one-time-only password. Basically, those are very dangerous, those application-specific passwords. The only right. protection is I can revoke it, but in order for that to work, I have to know it was being used. Yeah. So I think that's a much bigger flaw. <laughs> I mean, that's... That's terrible. That's like 16 alphabetic 
uh, characters, case insensitive alphabetic characters. If somebody should see that or find that, then I'm really yep. screwed. Yep. I don't know. So, um, also in the headlines, and I couldn't really uh, understand this, except that it has the magic word in the headline. <laughs> so the headline is how to make a, and here's the magic word, quantum, Ooh. random number generator from a mobile phone. And I realized quantum gets everyone excited as if some exotic physics huh. are in use. It's like, oh, it's quantum technology. Nobody understands that. And so I wanted to say, okay, wait, let's have a little bit of a reality check here. Everyone who, especially our age, Leo, but I, I would imagine even, even younger kids, are all familiar with audio hum and hiss. Yeah, you don't hear it you in know? digital, but in analog you do. Right. And, and so hum and hiss have, have historically been the boogeyman of audio systems. Hum, you know, mm, that's, that's, that's essentially induction of 60-cycle noise or 50, if you're in a 50 hertz area of the world, in which case it's mm. <laughs> um, And so, you know, in the old days, we'd, you know, you'd, you'd set up a really cool stereo system uh, or hi-fi, as we used to call it. Oh, yes. And, you know, as you, and you'd turn up the volume and the question was, you know, what did you hear? Was there, mm, well, actually the frequency wouldn't change, but it would get louder. Um, and if so, you'd, you'd go around moving wires and you'd rearrange things and you'd, there were things like ground loops that, that caused this problem. And so there was a whole black art to like getting the hum out of your stereo system because you wanted to be able to really crank it up. But when you came to a quiet part of the song or between tracks, um, you didn't want to have this hum. The other thing that was also the, the, the bugaboo is hiss. Hiss is quantum noise. You don't need fancy stuff to have quantum noise. It's, In fact, it's that fog we, you were talking about. Yes, we, we've always had it. You know, I mean, hiss is there. And so, you know, hum is the pattern, and we perceive it as a pattern, therefore a tone. Hiss is toneless. It's white noise or pink noise. You know, they have different spectrums depending upon where, you know, like, like what is carrying it. But it is quantum noise. So anything that is hissy, anything that is noisy, you know, the static that, you know, was on the screen of Poltergeist, you know, <laughs> that, you know, or after in the old days, they would raise the flag, the jets would fly by and the station would go off the air at 2 a.m. And we go, <laughs> that's quantum noise. So, so the, the reason that we use the term now is that we want computers always to add two numbers and get the same result. We want them to absolutely be unnoisy. And in fact, the whole, the whole change from analog to digital was essentially to get us out of the noise. That's what it was for. Instead of having signals that, that, that roamed around in, in value where we had a problem with 
thermal drift and components aging and and you know power supply putting out different voltages where the actual voltage itself the variable voltage carried the signal we said wait a minute we're going to come up with a system called digital where we have amplifiers at every single stage an AND gate, a NOR gate, a NAND, every one of those things is an amplifier. And at some, there's some small voltage range, normally around 0.7 or 0.8 volts, where when it when the input crosses that, the output slams all the way the other direction from like zero to five. So right there is this massive amplification effect. And so essentially... This amplifies out the noise at every stage in a logical system. That's digital computing is these amplifiers that they, they, they just squeeze out the noise so that, so, that, so that there's no chance for any to come in. And in which case, obviously, we can no longer represent data with a variable voltage or a variable current, you know, anything analog. Now... We represent, we approximate with a series of ones and zeros, which are, are you know, maybe zero and five volts, or it turns out anything above 0.8 or below 0.8, meaning that the noise is completely ignored as long as it doesn't get near that threshold. And so, so digital systems are designed to keep us away from that noise threshold and give us perfect results, perfect approximations as a function of, of how many bits we have quantized that analog value into. So this was all about using smart, th 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 this article that I saw so many times, because everyone knows I'm, I'm interested in entropy, was the idea that a, a couple dollars worth of smartphone camera could produce an amazing amount of noise, which is not at all surprising because a smartphone camera is now a grid of noise producers. Every single one of those little pixels on the camera is trying to be an analog receiver, an analog discriminator of photons coming in. But it is... Because it's running in the analog domain rather than in the digital domain, it's going to be subject to noise. There, there will be, you know, random effects. And, and actually, in a dim environment where there aren't a lot of photons coming in, you're not sure whether a photon is going to trip it or not. And if it's actually counting photons, then you've got, again, a, a, a very good source of quantum noise. Now you multiply that by the size of these smartphone cameras. I mean, they're massive now. So you've got ma many, many megapixels, many, many millions of pixels, each one of them an individual noise source. And sure enough, if you were to, if you were to digitize that and, and look at the least significant bits of those pixels, what you would see is changes, random changes as a function of 
this quantum noise, which is 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 present in the whole system, and now Leo is showing us a perfect picture. Random of noise. noise. <laughs> you were yep. wondering why I was showing that. <laughs> yep. It was the famous "they're here" scene from Poltergeist. Yep. So, so it's absolutely the case that something like a a camera is able to provide a huge amount of noise. Now, we're going to talk about here in a minute about the noise system, the noise gathering, the entropy harvesting that I've designed for Squirrel. One of the, the characteristics that Squirrel has is a very, very modest requirement for entropy. Um, but, for example, servers, web servers, have a huge appetite for entropy because you need a little bit for every secure connection you make. Remember that when we talked about the way SSL or TLS operates, each end sends the other a, a, a piece of randomness. They each generate something random and send it to the other to sort of protect their, so that they each take responsibility mutually for protecting the overall randomness of what they, what they use, what they create from their randomness. Um, so what is significant about this, this uh, video input is that these guys are, are talking about on the order of one and a quarter gigabit per second of noise from this camera, which again is not surprising because you've got, you have so many bits of resolution and so many individual pixels, each of which, every single one, is a, is a separate entropy source. Now, it may be far from perfect. There might be like interpixel influence and coupling. So you don't want to just take that exactly as it is. There, You want to do a lot of, of post-processing, and we'll be talking about that here uh, later in the podcast. But what these guys did was they said, hey, you know, if anybody wants, if anyone has a need for huge amounts of entropy then something as now as cheap as a consumer video camera can give it to you the the article was a little a little off though in suggesting that this was something every smartphone needed to have cuz frankly smartphones don't need have have no application for one and a quarter gigabits per second of entropy um even they have a need for some as they uh, as they create secure communications and and connections to you know the the net but they're not a server that is inherently terminating thousands of connections per second each of which requires and consumes some entropy so it was it was an interesting article but it's like okay i guess you know somebody could create a very high bandwidth entropy source using a camera in a dim box lit by a dim LED, which is basically what these guys did, uh, but most of us have no need for that kind of entropy. Um, another little piece of news that was difficult to understand, uh, and I, so I was glad to see that Bruce Schneier weighed in. Uh, Science Daily carried, uh, again, a headline that was a little overinflated, saying, New algorithm shakes up cryptography. 
And, and then they went on to say that researchers have solved one aspect of the discrete logarithm problem. When it's like, whoa, okay, hold on. You know, this is DLP, the discrete logarithm problem, which, for example, the is the alternative to the the prime factoring problem, which are the two hard things we've come up with in crypto. And so if, in fact, d- discrete logarithms had somehow been solved or substantially weakened, that would be really bad news. Suddenly, all of that Diffie-Hellman key agreement goes out the window, and that's not good. It turns out that's also not what happened. Um, you know, Science Daily went on to say, this is considered to be one of the holy grails of algorithmic number theory on which the security of many cryptographic systems are, u- are used today is based. They, the researchers, have devised a new algorithm that calls into question, it doesn't, calls into question the security of one variant of this problem, which has been closely studied since 1976. And none of that is true. Um, right. So, <laughs> That's nice. yes. Good reporting. What they, yes. What they did was they, they broke a tiny aspect of the discrete log problem for fields of so-called small characteristic. It would be like saying, oh, okay, we're going to multiply two primes, Mm, three and seven, and we're going to get 21. No one is going to be able to factor that. (laughs) Well, wait a minute. Uh, Three and seven. That's pretty obvious. Yeah. (laughs) Oh, yeah. Anyway, so Schneier weighs in saying, it's nice work and builds on a bunch of advances in this direction over the last several years. Despite headlines to the contrary, this does not have any cryptanalytic application unless they can generalize the result, which seems unlikely to me. So I was glad to have Bruce's confirmation because I looked at the paper and it looked to me like this was, you know, again, nothing. Uh, and in fact, that's the case. That basically, I mean, and this is good that researcher do, researchers are doing this. It's not as if this is, you know, they're misspending their time. Certainly that's not the case because it is from this kind of constant pounding on discrete logarithms that we gain increased confidence that the the actual size of fields that we're using are far enough huger than down where the academics are beginning to chip away that we're really, really sure we're safe. So, I mean, if anything, the fact that they couldn't do more says that what we have today, we can really count on for the foreseeable future. So, a good thing. Um, now, there's an, another another service came out of beta this week, and I got lots of requests for people asking me what I thought. I have added it to the, the upcoming cloud computing synchronizing cloud computing TNO storage podcast where I'm going to pull all this together, but I did want to acknowledge that I had seen it. And this thing is called, and this is the .NET that I was thinking of, Leo, so that's where I was confused. It's called SyncThing, 
S-Y-N-C-T-H-I-N-G, SyncThing.net. And I would summarize this as what I would recommend over BitTorrent Sync. That is, the unlike BitTorrent Sync, which is completely closed source and closed protocol, which they refuse to document despite a huge amount of request to let us see the protocol, BitTorrent won't. So here we have an open source, well-designed, cross-platform, inter-device syncing tool. Um, um, as they describe it, they say, SyncThing replaces Dropbox and BitTorrent Sync with something open, trustworthy, and decentralized. Your data is your data alone, and you deserve to choose where it is stored, if it is shared with some third party, and how it's transmitted over the Internet. Using SyncThing, that control is returned to you. Um, and they run through all the bullet points we would expect to see. Uh, you know, private, encrypted, authenticated. For example, authentication. Every node is identified by a strong cryptographic certificate. Only nodes you have explicitly allowed can connect to your cluster. You're able also to, like, send a certificate to a friend, and they install it in their instance of sync thing, and that and them having that authenticates them and allows them to connect to a folder of in your sync thing that you have shared. You will have uh, to open it, a, a port. You'll have to port forward to make it work. Um, yeah, I think it's twenty two thousand is the default port it runs on. Um, some you have to have one of your nodes public, although it understands a universal plug and play. So if you aren't comfortable forwarding yourself, it will do that for you. Um, and they talk about you know open discourse. They've got forums, open source. It's there on GitHub. Open protocol. It's all documented. N nothing hidden. Um, if they have a web GUI, so if, when you install it, it sets up a little local web server running on port 8080 on your machine. So then you just aim your browser at localhost uh, slash or localhost colon 8080, and and that allows you to access the 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 platform independent UI. Um, works on Mac OS 10, Windows, Linux, FreeBSD, and Solaris. Um, and uh, I thought I saw something about mobile, but I'm not seeing that here. So I might yeah, be confusing I don't see any mobile, with, uh, with options, the other yeah. story. Yeah. Um, and so I, I think what we're seeing here is, is one of two choices. I'm still a little more for the idea of a standalone client that uses a third-party storage provisioning, whether it be Google or Microsoft or whomever, um, and, and you know, local encryption technology. But an alternative is for people, as in the BitTorrent sync model, uh, and so here now we have this syncthing.net model, um, who want to set up, who don't want to use any third-party storage, who want to just interconnect a bunch of their devices um, and have folder synchronization happen, and you are able to exclude um, files of a certain uh, 
characteristic. There, there's documentation in their form about how you, you know, tell it not to synchronize some of the files that you've got in your folders. So you know what I'm using anyway, right be, now. If you're going to review this stuff, I'd love it if you to get a take on this. It's from the folks who did Drobo. It's called Transporter at uh, FileTransporter.com. Oh, that's on the list. Let so what see. this is doing, and I'm using this. I have a transporter at home and a transporter at work with a terabyte of storage on each. They use SSS. They, they, I sync over the network to them as if they're, you know, a network-attached storage device. And they sync with one another using SSL. Plus, the data is stored on the device, should somebody steal it, encrypted as well. And oh, so it is a, it's, it's a physical device. It's a, you, you own physical devices. There, there's no cloud uh, That's right. okay. uh, situation at all. Although they do have mobile apps, which can then log in and get your stuff. Um, so I'm not, but I don't think they, no, they don't use a third party. So they're logging into the device itself, which has got now, a presence or they may the use internet. Yeah, I guess that's it. Or they may use NAT. I'm not sure exactly how the transport is. But I do like the idea that um, there's no third party holding the data. Right. And it's synchronizing. I've, I've actually been using it here and at home, and I keep stuff synchronized. So it's, it's backed up and twice off-site. Right. And I have synchronization and it's sharing as well, and it it they claim uh, uh, you know it's it's uh, it's not open source but they claim they're using SSL and standard. Um, I don't know. I'd be curious what you think of it. Yeah, this seems like good. a little bit more. Uh, it's a command line interface, sync thing, and you kind of got to know what you're doing. Yeah, it's you're right. It's definitely not as turnkey. It's yeah. more for techies. More the more the kind of people who are wishing that BitTorrent would tell us what the sync protocol was. Right. It's like, well, here's sync thing, right. and it does all all the things that BitTorrent does. And arguably, I, I like the idea that it produces a certificate so that you use that for authentication. That yeah, just that's nice. That seems like I'd like the right solution. Yeah, yeah. In our miscellany section, um, I wanted to note that this is the release date today, May 20th, of Mark Rusinovich's Rogue Code. Book, oh, good. Um, available now in hardcover and in Audible. And uh, Simon Zarafa noted that Audible in the UK uh, has it listed now. And of course, uh, Amazon's got it on their Rogue Code page. Has been available for the Kindle for a while. And I, I was uh, about a third of the way in and got I got diverted into other research. So I, I, I but it's I've. Remember exactly everything where where I was, uh, where I left Jeff, and so I need to I need to get back and finish it because it was another one of Mark's uh, fun reads. Uh, it, and again, super exactly technically accurate as I've described it, sort of a fictionalized version of this podcast. <laughs> so our listeners will be going, "Oh yeah, okay, oh yeah, we know how that happens. Oh yeah, okay, yeah." I mean, and but you know, wrapped around a really good story. It's going to be a good sequel. I'm reading. Uh... Flash Boys, which is a story of high-frequency trading for reals. Ooh. Michael Lewis's great book. And this would be a great segue into this because it's how high-frequency traders now give basically a backdoor to the bad guys into the financial markets. Right. Oof. <laughs> and in miscellany, I wanted to mention uh, that this is – I'm holding up for everyone to see. This, is, this was actually sitting at the front door, <laughs> at the, which I discovered – after last week's podcast, when I was first talking about unsolicited, because they were not an advertiser on this podcast, about 
what I was pronouncing as Harry's, H A R R Y, apostrophe S. Harry's. Harry's. Harry Perry. I think Harry is fine. So it's H A R R Y S dot com. I did receive this handle that I like better than the fancy silver one. The silver one is a is a is a is a round cylinder. Yeah, we sent you the Winston set. You got the Truman set. Yes. yes, and and so this one is flat on several surfaces, and it's funny too because the first time I used it with the 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 silver round one, I was very conscious of having no no sense for which direction the blade was aimed in because there was no orientation coming you know feedback on the handle, and it wasn't until after I was through using the orange one that I got, and by the way, it's available in four colors. Orange, black, gray, and white, or something, and I liked, liked orange because it it shows up. You can't miss it. Uh, and so there was like, after I was done, I realized, oh, I wasn't even conscious of not having an orientation. So it it instantly solved that problem for me. Yeah. And again, the whole point of this is, it it gave me an um, an amazingly good <laughs> shave. I mean, just it's it's like. It's a different experience than I've had. Even though I've got the same number of edges, I've got five edges on my Gillette Fusion. These five are better, and you know. And I said it last week just because it's true, and because you sent me one, and I tried it, and it's like okay. And then I got some tweets from people who were disturbed that it was unfortunately only the U.S. and Canada. Um, and then some others said, "Well, we're not going to buy it until they." You know, support the, your podcast, and it's like, okay, well, they're, That's they're, they're, still support, they're still supporting Twit, but then just today in my Twitter feed this morning, Harrison Ward, uh, who tweets from H Bomb three forty one, he wrote, he said at SGGRC, and he's also said at Harry's, he said first shave today, and wow, all caps, that's a good shave. Comparable to my seven-month-old baby's butt. (laughs) Darn close to to the same. And then he said, agree slick handle. And I don't know what that meant, but uh, because there is no rubber. It's a hard plastic handle, but at least the fact that it's not not a cylinder, for me, uh, made it much more pleasant. And anyway, I'm converted. This is now my shaver uh, for as long as these guys stay in business. And I'm I'm tempted to buy a whole bunch of blades and put them in the refrigerator. Well, we're doing our best to keep them in business. You just stay tuned, okay? (laughs) Meanwhile. Um, Also, uh, Halt and Catch Fire that we've spoken of several times. It's on YouTube, somebody told me. Actually, the the first at the entire fifty minute first episode is available in preview on amctv.com. So if you go to amctv.com, um, it, technically there's a long URL. It's in the show notes for anyone who wants it, and I tweeted the show notes, and they'll be posted on the on the net. Um, but I imagine you can just find it if you go to amctv.com. I'm a little put off by it, frankly. I'll I'll reserve judgment. I don't want to turn anyone off, but it just seemed a little, I don't know, a little overly dramatic, maybe. Is it compact? uh, They don't, I don't think they identify by name. I kept waiting to to see a Rod Canyon show up, but there seemed to be nobody by that name. So I think it is, it is that, 
or maybe it's just a clone. Maybe right. it's not compact, it's, but I it's think something it kind of like compact. it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So for anyone who's curious, I, I watched five minutes of it, and it was kind of it was a little bit jerky on the on you know and you know playing as a as a media file on my through my web browser. So I thought, okay, well I'll I'll wait a couple of weeks because it's going to be premiering I think on June first. Uh, but no, we'll 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 see maybe. And I saw Godzilla. Oh. What'd you uh, think? Uh, I have two friends who really wanted to see it. I went with them. Uh, Jenny was willing to go, bless her heart. And <laughs> we all really liked it. Um, I have to say, I mean, I, I don't think I even saw one ever Godzilla movie because the whole thing was so stupid <laughs> to me. Um, this was a solid movie. I mean, yes, you're going to have a Godzilla and a couple other things, but boy, I mean, it was, there was human interest, it was well produced. We didn't spend, it wasn't just them stomping around on things the whole time. I mean, they, that was actually my problem with it. They, they, yeah, they well, every time they got in a battle, they'd cut away to the family. Who cares? I want to see them monsters fight. Yeah, well, there, I thought there was enough of that, and boy, there's nothing left of San Francisco. <laughs> yeah, they really demolished <laughs> oh, the... Oh, uh, yeah. baby. And and made just shy of $200 million over this yeah, first weekend. Not bad, huh? first weekend, at least. So that's, I remember when that was you know, like, if a movie made $200 million total ever, it was ever, a record yes. holder. So, yes. Yeah, three days. Yeah. So anyway, I, you know, I, I just have to say, I, I thought it was a solid movie. If you're on the fence... Uh, you know, Godzilla will smash it. <laughs> uh, uh, Squirrel, uh, I'm deep in and rolling forward and having a, a lot of fun. The, of course, all of the browser revocation stuff is behind me. Uh, the Entropy Harvester is written. I actually posted the source code to it uh, this morning on my Twitter feed, if anyone is interested. Uh, there's also a link to the source code in the show notes of Squirrel's Entropy Harvester that I'll be describing here in a minute. Uh, and I'm now moving forward. I, I've implemented the, the two most complex screens or pages of the dialogue. Uh, one is the main launching page, which has all the buttons that takes you to different things you want to do. The second one is the option settings page. And in order to do those, I had to finish adding a bunch of UI engine features to the system, which I did and wrapped it up yesterday. So after the podcast today, I plow into the identity creation wizard phase. So I'm moving through at very good speed um, and in the process creating something that is inherently multilingual, which is uh, you know going to be fun to have something in 50 plus languages and, and counting. So uh, I still have no idea when I'll have something. I just you know, I'm unable to predict. I didn't know that, like, revocation was going to happen, which caused me to suspend work on Squirrel for three weeks. Uh, but I'm back to it. So, uh, and I will try not to be distracted because I want to get it done so I can get back to Spinrite. Speaking of which, I have a really nice story. And I've, again, found something different. Um, this is by, uh, written by a Jeremy Webb with two Bs, and he said, Dear Steve, this was, he called this the remote control spinwright story. He said, I've always been my parents' tech support guy. When I joined the U.S. Air Force, they stationed me pretty far away from home. and doesn't divulge where. And he said, thankfully, I've always been able to VNC into their computers to get things straightened out. 
This week, I was presented by a rather unique challenge. My mother called to tell me that their computer was throwing a bunch of disk errors in Windows. Fixing this problem was particularly difficult for two reasons. First, VNC wouldn't help them if their hard disk suddenly crashed. Second, I'm currently deployed, oh, he did tell me, to Afghanistan, where getting a good enough connection to VNC into their computer can be difficult. Boy, I guess. He says, I knew that Spinrite might be able to fix the disk errors, but would I be able to walk my parents, who aren't the most tech-savvy people, through it over the phone? Believe it or not, I was able to get a good enough connection to VNC into their computer and make a Spinrite bootable image for them. I was then able to instruct my mother over the phone how to boot into Spinrite and start the repair process. She called me the next day and told me that Spinrite had fixed 12 errors and that their computer was back to running normally. I cannot tell you how much we appreciate your product. It really saved the day, Jeremy. So for what it's worth, uh, if you've got family members who are in trouble, you could consider emailing them a copy, uh, talk them through making a, a boot disk and media and uh, fixing their problems remotely. That works too. That's quite a challenge. Uh, let's talk about Harry's. What do you say? Sounds good. Our show today brought to you by harrys.com. H-A-R-R-Y-S.com. Let's see if I can find the right lower third. There you go. A great shave at a fraction of the price. I got my Harry's. Now, this is the Winston uh, kit here. Uh, let me see if there's some way I could show you this. I got tubes of goo and um, uh, I got three things. Goo. Tubes of goo. Oh, <laughs> a, a blade, blades in the handle. Right. Yeah, tubes of goo, and and the goo is wonderful too. Tubes I'm not I'm not switching and... back to the edge to edge. Well, I think you know you said it and you weren't sure what it was that uh, right that that no, sold you on this, but uh, you said that it might be the tube of goo. Let me show you real real quickly the whole kit. This is the Winston kit, and it's one of they have a Truman, which is what you got with the uh, plastic handle, and then the Winston kit has a, a metal handle. Um, I've already kind of disassembled it a little bit, so let me let me reassemble it. Here's the Harry's Shave Cream. And you're right. If you've been using an aerosol shave solution, uh, this is really creamy. It goes on nice and smooth, has a beautiful menthol smell, and, yes, taste. I tasted it on the last show. <laughs> <laughs> Although that is not a recommended use. Uh, let me show you the Harry's. Uh, the idea, this was started by a couple of guys, one of whom, Jeff, was one of the co-founders of Warby Parker. And it's kind of a similar enterprise. The idea is to take a business where companies, uh, due to their you know heavy-duty marketing, overcharge for a product. Yeah. Um, Harry's Razor uh, is beautifully designed, meticulous craftsmanship. These blades are made in Germany, where all the best blades are. It's a great value. They have highly dedicated and personal customer service for you. Shipped right to your door. This is the Winston with the metal handle that you didn't like. But you know what you could have considered is if you get this engraved, then you'll know exactly where the back is. Just a thought. Uh, these these are really affordable. And when you use the offer code security now, you're going to get uh, $5 off. 
So that's that's really nice. The prices you see at grocery stores, uh, you know, for blades. Oh, Leo, they are so expensive. It's so expensive, they actually lock them up at our local CVS here. You have to get a clerk to come over like it's diamonds. Uh, but they're, you know, like 4 or $5 a blade. That's not what Harry's charges. Um, it, it, these are be- really beautiful blades. As you mentioned, and, you know, this is something I wouldn't mind talking about. Uh, the mechanism is very simple for putting the blades on and removing them. It's really well and, designed. And it, and it I've works. Spent, I've spent minutes, like, staring at it, trying to think, okay, wait a minute. I mean, you feel it snap on. It will <laughs> right. not come off. Right. But then you push up from the base, and it releases it. It's yeah. like, okay, wait a minute. How, yeah. how does that work? Very nicely know. done. Um, they have their own factory in Germany, so they are completely controlling the quality of these. Um, I just I just want you to try it out. Visit Harry's, H-A-R-R-Y-S dot com. Use the promo code security now. You get $5 off your first uh, uh, purchase. And this would be, a, by the way, a wonderful uh, a wonderful gift for uh, you know so anybody who shaves. You know, a teenager shaving for the first time, start them off right. You know, give them, give them a sense of what a real nice razor. Don't go yeah, to... Yeah, hey, don't, it's graduation time, right? This is a perfect dad's and grad's gift. Are you kidding? In fact, get one yeah, for dad father, and get... Father's yeah, Day's Father's Day is coming up. I love that they put the... I don't know if you've got a card in yours that says, Good looking, I'm, better looking, chocolate melt steel is forever. Harry's. I'm going to figure out how these <laughs> blades attach. It's the last time <laughs> Visit the website and you can see the variety of uh, kits uh, they have. Steve went for the um, the Truman set. That's really... It's $15 and that includes two blades, the cream and the uh, razor. Actually, three blades. Uh, yes, the one on and then one two on in the and box. Two, yeah, and then the Winston set, $25 for the metal handle, and you can get an engraved for $40, which will take $5 off. German blades, the lovely moisturizing shave cream. You can buy all of this individually. Harry's blades are $2 or less. The complete refill pack is probably the way to go. You get these shipped right to your door. Harry's. Harry. Harry's. They're really great. And you know what? They love you, Steve, as you might imagine. A great shave at a fraction of the price. Harry's.com. Use the offer code security now to get $5 off. All right, Steve. That's entropy. It's entropy, dude. It's... I love it. So let's talk about your entropy generation engine. And just a reminder, I have one more break in the middle of that. IT Pro TV is going to do an ad. So just so you know. Well, we will do that. Um, okay, so um, we've got a client running on something, on a desktop, on a phone, on a, on, on a tablet, somewhere. And it needs entropy. We understand why we have to have entropy because, because in any kind of crypto – there has to be something secret. In bad old crypto, the algorithm was secret. And the problem is it's very difficult to keep algorithmic secrets. You know, they leak out. Someone reverse engineers it. It's like they have your algorithm. Well, if you're if you're if the secret is the algorithm, you're in trouble because an algorithm is fundamentally difficult to change. So a big innovation was when we moved to keyed cryptography where everybody could know what the algorithm was. It was, you know, people had it on their T-shirts. Uh, it was no big deal because the secret was the key and the key could be changed. 
And so that's where the notion of an ephemeral key comes from, a key agreement where on the fly, two parties are able to to arrive at the same secret, even when their conversation might be eavesdropped on. So for all of these things, in order to get these keys, we need them to be unpredictable. Uh, You know, a key that comes from a counter, for example, would be bad because if anyone got your current key, all they have to do is add one, add one, add one, add one until they get, you know, they'll like catch up to where you are and then they've got your new key. So you don't want to, you know, don't want a, your, a, a counter to generate your keys. You want something which is unpredictable so that even somebody knowing a lot about what you're doing, for example, your current key has no idea what your, hopefully what your past keys were, nor what your future keys will be. So you want that to be, you want, you want um, essentially there to be as much randomness in the key as possible. So what, what we, when we start talking about specifically what we want is we want some number of bits of key length and every single bit to have a 50-50 chance of being a one or a zero and to be as independent if as possible, if not completely independent, you know, virtually independent of any other bits so that knowing a few doesn't tell you anything about any of the others, even what their bias might be, for example. And in all of this, in the... You know, when when I'm sitting here saying, okay, I've got to solve this problem in a really, really robust fashion for Windows, and I'm hoping that other developers of Squirrel clients on other platforms will consider my solution and consider adopting it because the, the, the worst thing to do is to leave the issue of entropy to the end. And just say, okay, well, I need a random number. Or just to call the rand function in whatever language you're using and assume that that's useful. Many languages, even today, base it on a very simple multiply and add called a linear congruential pseudo-random number generator that, that to varying degrees of quality does a really poor job. So it may be varying, but it doesn't vary very high. Um, so so sitting here saying, okay, I have to actually get random numbers. I mean, like, for real, where do I get them? Um, there are two things we need to concern ourselves with. We, we have the, the no regard for an attacker. That is, we, we need random numbers without considering the attack side, which is we want them to be high quality. We... Absolutely for Squirrel and for, I mean, just in general for for cryptographic protocols, um, as I said, we want all of the bits to be random. Now, some people who learned about Squirrel said, wait a minute, you're using a 256-bit key. What if there's a collision? Well, you know, if you're arriving at them randomly, two people could arrive at the same thing randomly. So... That's worth addressing briefly. And so let's, again, 
people, humans, are probably the best organisms on the planet for understanding probability. And even so, we're really bad at it. We talk about, you know, glibly, oh, 256 bits. You know, how hard could that be? And so it, it takes putting in, in, giving it some perspective to understand this. So with 256 bits, I assert that the risk of collision, but of, of assuming that they're random, okay? So let's, so for the moment, we assume all 256 bits are individually chosen to be ones and zeros at random from a really good source of entropy. So we'll have that as a given. Well, so we're just looking at this collection of bits itself, assuming they're random. What, what does it really mean to have them collide? Well, it means that two people are going to ha- have 256 individual 50-50 decisions, which are each identical. So not like overall identical. I mean, the first one, each of them makes the first same first choice. Each of them makes the same second choice. Each of them makes the same third choice for each bit. 256 times, not one bit different. That's a collision. So how likely is that? Good news is we've got math geniuses who have have sat around and figured out what the chances are, not of a given value coming up, but of within a population of people, each choosing their own number, and this is the so-called birthday attack, what is the chance that any two of them in this group will will arrive independently at the same number assuming all the bits are chosen randomly. So it turns out that we can estimate the probability as if we, if the, we have uh, the, a number of, of sets of bits chosen is P and the sets are of N bits. So in our case, N would be 256. And let's just say a billion because that's way more than there are people who are ever going to use squirrel. Um, so P is a billion and N is 256. So the probability is of, of a collision is about P squared over 2 to the N plus 1. The mathematicians have figured that out. Now, that's an approximation, but it holds for, for situations about like this. What that means in terms of math when you plug in the numbers is it with our 256 bits and a billion different keys, the probability is about 4.3 times 10 to the negative 60. Now, again, we're bad with numbers. 4.3 times 10 to the negative 60. So someone would say, well, that could happen. Okay, 4.3 4.3 times 10 to the negative 60. So again, this is zero point, and then behind the decimal are 60 zeros, way out there, and then a 4.3. But again, to give it some context, an extinction level event, an ELE, occurs, we estimate, about once every 30 million years. 
on average. So that means that there's a certain probability of it occurring in the next second. Like within this, like one second from now, okay, they just happened. That the chance of us, we've sur- just survived it. Oh, and again, and again, and every second that goes by, we survived a one second probability of an extinction level event. The probability of our surviving from second to second is 10 to the negative 15. So that gives you a sense. We're surviving with a probability of 10 to the negative 15. The chance of a billion people, any two people in a billion having a collision of 256 bits chosen truly at random is on the order of 10 to the negative 60 or 45 orders of 10 magnitude more probable. I mean, 45 order magnitude less probable of the collision that, that we're going to be all killed in the next second. So anyone who's worrying about 256 bits acquired with really true high entropy is worried about the wrong thing. We'll just stare up at the sky because that's 10 to the 45 chance more likely to happen than anyone, any two in a billion people having their, their keys collide. So that's our, that's our need without regard for an attacker. But the system, since it's going to be operating on Windows and on pads and phones, has to also be robust in the face of attack. It's got to be resistant to anything an attacker can do. So, and that's even, that's either a passive or an active attacker. A passive attacker may be able to somehow gain access to our secrets if, for example, they're inadvertently swapped out uh, to the hard drive or if the system is suspended and RAM is saved out to the hard drive for, for later resumption or if the system is suspended in RAM and then, for example, it's got a, um, a, a, a Thunderbolt or a Firewire interface that gives it DMA access to RAM, that's a problem. Or remember, we, we talked about people spraying the, the RAM on the back, bottom of the laptop with, you know, Freon and then yanking it out really quickly and going and putting it in something else and powering it up before the RAM had a chance to, all the data had a chance to bleed away. So we need protection from eavesdropping but then we're also an application running on the operating system. So there's an interface, the so-called API, the application programming interface, where we talk to the operating system. And that's a point of vulnerability. Even if our process itself, if the, if the process's RAM is protected, um, there's a chance that somebody could get into the operating system kernel or stick a shim of some sort in between our our interaction with the operating system and either either passively eavesdrop the data that we're getting from the operating system or perhaps actively change it. For example, if we ask the OS for its cryptographically secure random number um, and we just blindly use it, 
then you know what if there was a what if the OS wasn't as secure as our app? We, we'd gone to all these measures. We'd made sure we can't get swapped out. We 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 we've locked ourselves in RAM. We we sense hibernation. We sense suspension, and we deal with all that. And and I've already written all that code for Squirrel. There is a a, a protected region of memory where all of Squirrel's secrets are kept. And at the first sign of anything happening that would endanger it, it is wiped to make sure that it is never saved in, uh, in, in any state that would allow someone to get to it. And even, even then, it's kept encrypted until the instant it's needed, it's used and then wiped. So, it, so nothing stays around just out of laziness or lack of care. But still, what if an attacker was able to intercept our API call for a random number and just return zeros? Now the attacker knows that they've arranged to feed us zeros or a pattern, you know, uh, you know A's. Uh, in hex or is one zero one zero one zero one zero. We might not detect that, where we might detect all zeros and choose not to use it. Now the attacker has given has by controlling what they're doing on the outside has influenced what we're doing on the inside in a way that helps them. So we need to consider that. Um, so we need to to think in terms of how do we achieve a a reliable set of entropy where we both need high quality entropy just from a standpoint of, of needing randomness, but also resistant to, to it escaping from us to its being passively eavesdropped on or an attacker actively interfering with our attempt to collect it. Then we come to the question of how much do we need? Because this is a huge factor in, in the design. I talked earlier in the podcast about how a server inherently needs huge amounts of entropy because it is potentially terminating tens of thousands of SSL connections per second. Every single one of those connections, it has to provide a random cookie which it, it combines with the, the randomness that the user provided and sends back to the user in the client hello handshake in order to, or the client hello and server hello handshake in order to generate an SSL connection. So its, it's need is massive. One of the problems with physical processes, anything quantum is by definition a physical process. It's, you know, it might be an electron going against a, a, a diode's PN junction and tunneling through and something detects that, amplifies it, and that's a, a quantum event. Or it might be a, a random photon coming in and hitting a, a photosensor, and that's a quantum event. But there, it's a physical process which inherently means there's a limit to the rate at which those things are happening. And that rate could be substantially lower than the, than the, the appetite, the consumption rate that, for example, something that is hugely hungry for entropy has. So the way we've traditionally handled that is we combine 
a software algorithm, which is a pseudo-random number generator, where we seed it with a true random number source. Um, and that, for example, is exactly what Intel built into their latest model um, processors for the last couple years now. I think they started in about 2012 um, from, I want to say, Ivy Bridge. I think that was the generation of processor where the, the it, it's the RDRAND instruction, read RAND, and they have on chip a quantum noise source, which which generates noise. It is filtered and conditioned, and then it's used to generate the seed for a simple counter AES pseudo random number generator. So that the some randomness sets the the initial count of the of of a 128 bit counter, and another. Um, another sets the the initial uh, value for a 256-bit counter, both which feed into the AES cipher. And the advantage of that is that those counters are able to spin at whatever rate is necessary and produce very high quality, because the AES cipher is good, very high quality pseudo-random numbers. Now, the reason... That doesn't work for me are a couple. For one thing, I don't need, Squirrel doesn't need a huge amount of, of entropy in, in terms of time. Uh, we'll, we'll talk about what its exact needs are in a second. But, but um, a problem with the counter s- system is that you have to absolutely be able to protect its state from an attacker. Because if an attacker were ever able to somehow capture that the the current key being used on the AES cipher, um, then then if they looked at a value that was output and they knew what the key was, they could run that the other direction through AES, because remember that AES is a symmetric cipher, so they would decrypt the output. That would give them the current state of the input counter and now they can go both directions they can go and look at all the numbers they they can essentially compute all of the numbers that have recently been generated and will be generated in the future so while that kind of a of a counter based cipher based pseudo random number generator is very nice if you can put it in silicon where you can guarantee no access it's dangerous to have it in software where you you can't really in a, in a trustworthy fashion make the same sort of security assertion so so it, so it worked for intel cuz they're 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 creating silicon they can put all this in silicon so that the only programmatic interface is at the other end of a FIFO. And that's what they've got is a first-in, first-out queue, which they fill up and then they stop their their pseudo-random number generator, which is seeded by a true random number generator, until the FIFO gets to a certain level of emptiness, and then they turn that on again. And that and that's just really for power consumption's sake. And then they fill up the buffer again. And then in the background, the 
the true random number generator that cannot produce true random numbers fast enough to meet the need, for example, of a high a high-end server application, it can at least reseed. So what's going on, again, on in silicon for them is it is that they're true random numbers coming from a, from a hardware process that is fundamentally limited, a bandwidth limited. It is, re, it is constantly reseeding the, the pseudo-random number generator. The reason you want that is you never want it to repeat, not that it's going to anytime soon, but you also, just in terms of security margin, you only want to produce so many pseudo-random numbers from the same seeding source before before cryptographers just get a little uncomfortable with the fact that, you know, we are using a fully deterministic source. So, you know, if anyone had a way of, of ever reversing this, that would be trouble. So constantly reseeding is, is the way they solve that problem. Okay, but we don't have the need in, in Squirrel for almost any entropy. Remember, one of the cool things about Squirrel is the actual protocol is zero entropy consumption. We are handed a, a challenge by the server. So that is the server client that is the user is handed a challenge from the server. That does require some entropy. There's a nonce in there, which essentially we sign using our private key derived from our super secret key, which we never share, and the domain name. So it's the domain name and our super secret key generates our identity, which we have already we have previously registered with the website. Then it sends us something random. We sign that and send it back. And it verifies the signature with our public key, which it has. That's the whole protocol. I mean, that's what's so cool about Squirrel is its its elegance and its simplicity. But notice that during that transaction, all we were doing on a transaction basis was signing something we were given. No entropy needed. So that means that the Squirrel client's requirement for entropy is only for creating an identity which might happen once in your lifetime. Hopefully, you never lose the identity and lose control of it. Squirrel provides mechanisms for dealing with that if you do. You might want a second identity on the same site, in which case you would use it again, or each family member might have their own. So there are reasons to do it more than once, but typically very, very, very seldom. And then the one other time we use entropy is when we are encrypting a user's password, since the password itself may not be perfect entropy, it's uh, as a passphrase and, you know, coming from people, it's probably not going to be. Since it may not be perfect entropy, then we do need a nonce to, uh, to salt our encryption in order to protect the password. So those are the only two things that Squirrel needs entropy for at all. In other words... Very little. So so the solution I came up with, essentially, it, it's, it's simple, elegant, and easy to describe. 
and it solves every one of those requirements that I've laid out so far. And it is this. We take Wait a minute. Don't tell us. Oh, perfect. Perfect <laughs> part. Perfect tell us part. not, Mr. Steve, perfect. but keep us hanging because it and is I'm, time I'm, for us I'm to speak spot. of other things like IT Pro TV, ladies and gentlemen. I know you're listening because you're a geek. If you weren't, you'd be gone long ago. Long ago. But I know that many of you feel like you could buff up your IT skills. Or maybe you know everything, but you need to get that certification so you can get a great job. This is what IT Pro TV is so great about. They're in, it's a world, a network devoted entirely to information technology. So if you want to jumpstart your career in IT or you're already working in the field and you want to get that A-plus or the MCSE or the ISC squared... If you want to get your certificates, they do CompTIA, Microsoft, Cisco, and more, including A+, CSENT, Net+, Security+, MCSA. They've got Adam Gordon, who's so great, teaching the uh, ISC squared stuff, including SSCP and CISSP. If none of this makes any sense to you, go listen to Captain Kangaroo, because the grown-ups are talking right now. This is about IT, baby. IT! And I'll tell you what, they're, they're on... Now, let's see, that says previously recorded. You might look at this and say, that looks a little bit like the screensavers are... Or twit. Well, that's intentional. Tim and Don uh, admit, and I love it. I'm 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 good with this. That they were inspired by what we're doing here, and they're saying, you know, what if somebody did a twit or a tech TV devoted to the IT professional? One low monthly price with all access membership, updates daily. They've already got many many courses online, and they add thirty hours of new content each and every week. Network security, PC support, VLANs. This is live. You can chat with the live hosts just as you can with Twit, but you also can get them on demand. In fact, if you get the yearly subscription, you can download MP3s and videos of, of their shows so you can put them on your iPad and travel with them. They're, you can watch on your Roku. They have a Roku app, computer, your mobile device. A lot less than, than going to IT boot camp, probably less than the study guides. Plus, with your subscription, you get the Measure Up practice exams free. That's a $79 value. They have a virtual machine sandbox lab that lets you try it hands-on. You get your servers, you get your clients, and everything, all in virtual machine. Normally $57 a month or $570 for an entire year. If you go to itpro.tv slash security now, right now, and you uh, use the offer code SN30, you'll get 30% off. Now we're talking less than 40 bucks a month or 400 bucks for the whole year. This is worth its weight in gold, my friends. I want you to try it. If you want to get those certs, this is the way to learn. ITPro.tv slash security now. If you go there right now, you can also, there's a lot of free stuff you can look at just to get a sense of what they offer. But when you decide to buy, please do me a favor. Use the offer code SN30 and you'll get 30% off. ITPro.tv. Say hi to Tim and Don. Really, really great guys. What are they studying right now? Oh, the OSI layer model. Application, transport, internet, link layer. Oh, man. <laughs> Steve Gibson is here. <laughs> this is an education. He's talking about Squirrel, which is his proposal for a, uh, a sane way of authenticating with web servers. And he said you found a magic key. Well, so um, Squirrel doesn't need a huge volume of entropy. But what we want is an absolutely attack-proof, 
high entropy uh, chunk of randomness relatively seldom. So it want, we want to we want a solution where if anyone had a had had like compromised a previous key, they can't figure out what the next one's going to be, or if they or if or if they get the current one, they don't know what the one before was. So we want we want a solution which is not which is not simply algorithmic and that is to say pseudo random number we want you know when we want true randomness but in a way which is robust against every possible kind of attack from the outside of the application now the solution is a hash um hashing is a deliberately lossy function and it, it, we have to talk a little bit about exactly what the characteristics of a hash are that 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 enamor us of it for this application um a cipher like aes for example is not lossy meaning that if we put in with a given key we we put in 128 bits we're going to get a different 128 bits out where the relationship between what's in and what's out is a function of the key. So it's a, it's a, it's a keyed mapping between every possible combination of 128 bits and in and some different combination of 128 bits out for each one in, controlled by the key. And that's reversible, so that if you had the output, you can go back and get the input. That's what decryption of the encryption is, is that reversibility. A hash is completely different. It exists to, to reduce any input of any length into a fixed size output, a so-called digest or it's also known as a compression function because it can compress a large corpus into a fixed size, essentially a signature. Now, what is so cool about this is that if you imagine a large block going in, say that, say that we, uh, in, the, in the case of Squirrel, I use SHA-512. That's the obviously double size SHA-256. The, these are all members of the so-called SHA-2 family of hashes. I use an SHA-512 because in a single event, I need more than 256 bits. In a, if we're, when, we're, when Squirrel's creating a new identity, I need 256 bits just for the master key then I need 80 bits for the so-called rescue code, which is the, your, your get-out-of-jail card if you really get yourselves in trouble. Um, uh, and 128 bits as the nonce, which is used to encrypt that. I end up with like, what, what 448 bits I need. So 528 or 512 is perfect for that. So... So there, I never need more than 512 bits at once. 
and I don't need them very often. But so imagine, imagine that we had a hundred k of data behind this hash. We were we were going to feed a hundred k bytes of data through this hash. What is so cool, and 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 imagine this the hundred k all like sitting out there, not yet hashed, but but it's all there, and that the result of hashing that reduces to 512 bits. What's so cool about the, the, the hash functions, the really good cryptographically secure hashes, is that if we reach back and change any single bit of that entire 100K bytes that is input into the hash, just one bit, on average, every bit will change half the time. So that's the way to think about this. Essentially, no matter how large the input is, ev- the, the, the effect of every single bit coming in is such that changing that one bit, any one of those bits would invert every output bit half the time, independently with no pattern that's detectable. So this is, I mean, this is just, I just love this function. It's, it's, it is so cool because, it, because what this allows us to do is in the background, continuously stream a diverse set of sources of unpredictable, somewhat random, not necessarily fabulously random, but unknown, unpredictable, changing stuff into this hash function. And the the normal way we think of hashing is that you hash something. That is, there's a start and an end. Um, that is, you 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 have a you have a you know a file, and you want to hash the file to get a signature, or you've got a communication stream, and you hash that to get the result. Well, in terms of the actual algorithm, the there's an an, an initialization phase, then there's a sort of a data collecting phase, and then a finalizing phase. The finalizing phase goes through some final work and is what finally produces the 512 bits or whatever width the hash is. What that means is if we, instead of having a fixed buffer that we're going to hash, if we open the hash function and just pour data in, we don't know how long it is. We don't care how long it is. We don't care or know how much it is. We just pour it in to the hash continuously until we first need a random number. And then we stop the stream, finalize the hash, and obtain 512 bits. And the 512 bits we obtain is a function of every single bit that we dumped in during the entire time 
that stream was open. So that's the system that I've designed for Squirrel. I have a, I have this notion of many system things which are of unknown value and they're changing at different times in a, in a way that no one can predict and we just pour them all in. For example, Windows maintains a, a clock of processor counts which runs at you know, three point something, 3.2, whatever your, your clock rate is, gigahertz. And that's a 64-bit counter. So there's one thing, which is from the time the chip was last reset, that's the count. And that's with a resolution, you know, sub-nanosecond resolution, because it's running at three point something billion counts per second. So you know, many time, many counts per nanosecond. And what we do is we just take a snapshot of it. Now, itself, it's not very random. That is, it's a counter. So the most significant bits aren't going to be changing much. But the least significant bits are going like the wind. And we take a snapshot. We don't know what they are, but we don't care. But that's just one of many sources. Also, that Windows maintains with much less resolution, 100 nanosecond resolution, but still that's a tenth of a microsecond, the time that all threads are spent in user mode, all the time that all threads are spent in, in the kernel, the time that the scheduler is idle, hopefully there's that, that's something, uh, an instantaneous shot of the of Windows global usage statistics, the time that the particular thread doing the entropy harvesting has spent in the in user mode, in the kernel mode, idle, or and the time that it was the instant with 100 nanosecond resolution it was created. The same information for the process, the squirrel process. How much time has it spent, all of its threads, in user mode, kernel mode, idle, and the instant it was created. Um, then we also have... Um, some some information which may not change at all, but is probably unique to the process, the process ID, the thread ID, um, a, a bunch of different system handle values that are probably static while we're collecting it, but change from instance to instance, and certainly from user to user and system to system. And, for example, the instantaneous X and Y position of the mouse. Then... We also have the platforms, in this case Windows, the cryptographic random number generator. Now, that's, that was no good in Windows 2000. It was notoriously flaky. So Microsoft got serious about it, and they fixed it in XP. And I've seen a list of, the, 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 of what it collects in order to generate its own private internal buffer of data, which is one of the things that we ask for. I mean, it's everything in the system. It's packets of accounts of, of, of network packets and timing and disk accesses. I mean, just everything that the kernel, the guys in the kernel could think of, this is collecting. And much of it has, is, is, is you know, tied into real world events, which are producing true entropy, not algorithmic entropy approximations. So we ask Windows 
for that. Then there's also that read RAND instruction, which on all newer systems will be present, but won't be if they're older than two years. So I ask for it, and if it's available, that gets poured in too. And then there's one last really cool thing, because things like the wind, all those windows variables, and even the cryptographic random number generator, remember I said that there was a chance that in theory, bad guys could could insert hooks around the application so that we thought we were getting good random values, but they were being messed with. Well, anything that we don't ask outside of the process for, nobody, you know, we're not crossing the process boundary, nobody can intercept. So the read RAND instruction is one of those things. It's us and the processor. It's us issuing an instruction saying, give me a 64-bit random value or a 32-bit random value. And we do it a bunch of times and we suck some of the pseudo-random data out of that FIFO buffer. Because it's us directly accessing the chip, no software can intervene in that. And there's one thing, though, which is also useful because that's only been around since Ivy Bridge and a lot of people have older processors. From the dawn of time, there's been something called RDTSC, which is read timestamp counter. That's a 64-bit counter, which increments with the, it is, it is incremented by the clock of the chip. So once again, it's running at gigahertz speed. Now, not only is it just a blur, but again, even in the oldest still-running Intel chip. It was there in the Pentium, the very first Pentium. Um, it's, it's, a, it's an instruction which no attacker can intercept our access to, and no attacker can know the value we got. Um, and it is extremely random. Um, one of the things that's happened with processor design is while all of the computation work that's being done is deterministic. You know, it, you always add two numbers and get the same result. If you tell it to jump to a certain location, it's going to do that. But the one thing which we've softened dramatically is the determination of when. In, or in, this, in this constant quest for performance... We've gone to all kinds of lengths to increase the performance. We've got, as we've talked about in various podcasts, level one, level two, level three caches. So some things will, some instructions will execute quickly because they're in the, right there in the level one cache. If not, then they have to go to the level two cache. And if not, to the level three, and God help us, they may need to go out to main memory in order to, to actually uh, get serviced. Um, but we also have we have so-called superscalar processor architecture now, where multiple streams of instructions are 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 being processed at the same time. Instructions themselves take varying lengths of time because, if, for example, if I add two things and get EAX, you know, the, the the result in the in the EAX register, and then I immediately want to OR EAX with itself 
to see whether to, to set the status to see what the result was, that ends up stalling because the, the processor has just re- the, the previous instruction changed EAX and now I'm wanting to use that value. Well, it turns out that if we were to stagger the instructions so that we were doing something else first before um, needing the result from the previous instruction, those things can be done in parallel. So there's parallel channels through. Also, there's out-of-order instructions. The, the, the processor looks at what it's being asked to do, and it looks at down ahead of the instruction flow to see if there are th- instructions that are not dependent upon results that it has yet to compute. And if so, it'll do those ahead of time and just hold their answers. Anyway, the point is the actual internals of today's processors is incredibly chaotic. And branch prediction, the system is trying to guess whether we're going to take a branch or not based on the history of the branches that we've been taking. So so the, the, the instantaneous contents of the caches, the branch prediction, the multiple pipelines that, that we're executing, the history of pipeline stalls, all of this contributes to the fact that when we issue this, this RDTSC instruction, we have no idea what time of day it is. We have no idea what value we're going to get. And we don't care. We take that and we dump it into the hash. But the, key, the, but the point is that no attacker can possibly know. And essentially, the exact value we get is based on the entire history or at least the local history of what the whole system is doing, and there is it, it is it is it is itself chaotic and unknowable. And everything I've just said, we do minimal of fifty times per second. Fifty times a second, there is a low priority thread which captures all of that data and dumps it into the hash. And then I also have that inserted into the so-called message loops in the application so that every movement of the mouse across the UI generates messages. Every message causes a snapshot of that, that instantaneous snapshot of, the, of all of those values in the machine, cryptographic data, random data from the Intel chip, the instantaneous unknowable state of that timestamp counter, and just pours it into the hash. And then finally, at some point, if we say we want to create an identity or we want to change our password and so so that Squirrel needs some absolutely high-quality randomness that nobody else on the planet will ever have, no one can affect, no one can attack, no one can influence in any way, we close the hash and the history of everything we poured in with every single bit being significant. Even if even if some of the stuff like, you know, things like processor ID or your Mac your Mac address, well that's unique for you. That's not going to change from run to run, but it's unique compared to everyone else. See, even low entropy things will mix in with all of the high entropy things and combine to give us an absolutely random 512 bits result. And that's the way Squirrel's entropy is harvested. 
and uh, I can't think, and none of the people in the user group who have been working with me uh, analyzing this uh, can think of any way that an attacker can get anything from us. So that's what Squirrel does. <laughs> Two hours and ten minutes later, that's what Squirrel does. Ladies and gentlemen, Steve Gibson. Steve is the, by the way, I've been playing the whole time. People wonder, what do you do, Leo, while Steve's talking? Black. Black. You know about Black? Of course. It's awesome, isn't it? I have. I, I saw it a week ago when, when Andy told you about it. And uh, I just, I, the good news is I, I have convenient of uh, convenient memory. I keep forgetting it. So it hasn't had a Forget chance to Black. have a grip on It's just going to get you in trouble. Oh, my Lord. Are yeah. those black holes? Yeah. There's no way you can get to those dots. Oh, dude, I'm up to 31 now, and it's getting harder and harder. Actually, 33. Oh. <laughs> I just, wow. I just warn you. Actually, this one's not as hard as it looks because, for instance, if I do this, it go well, you got to avoid those black holes, right? It shoots, and then it goes... It, oh, oh look, they, they, they have little ricochet yeah, things. Yeah, some of them so have little... little Shooters, the little, the little white dot. Yeah, ah, yeah, cool. yeah. But then I can't figure out how to get those. <laughs> <laughs> I was wondering if you knew about that because, given your what interest in, in rails, oh, this is kind of like that, rails. You're right. Yeah, that, that would do yeah. me in. Um, Blek, if you want to spend a buck ninety nine and waste the rest of your weekend. Steve Gibson is at grc.com. Next week of feedback episode, Stevie. We're going to do a Q&A, and I got, a, I got an email from Brett Glass, who I've mentioned several times on the show, super, super smart, network-aware techie, and he, he said to me, he said, Steve, I, I just need a chance to explain net neutrality in a way that, oh, that I think people will all understand. So Good. I'm going to ask Brett if he'd like to be a special guest for a part of our Q&A episode next week uh, and give him a chance to really explain it in a way that he thinks is useful, because... Uh, I'm sure he does understand it. Yeah, you know, and Brett's great. I love Brett. So that'd be, be yep. I think that's good. Um, you know, there was a video I was showing uh, uh, made by a woman named Vi Hart that was really excellent. But then I realized it was somewhat of a broken analogy. And I know we're just trying to find the exact analogy so everybody can understand this. And of course, the FCC has proposed those new rules, and there is an alternative, yep. and they're taking comment. They're saying, do you really, maybe you want us to declare uh, broadband providers as. Uh, common carriers, a utility that we can regulate. The court said that's what you're going to need to do. FCC doesn't want to do it. I think we want them to do it, but I'd love to hear what Brett has yeah. to say. Next week, yes. that'll be good. Uh, yes. But we'll also take questions and answers on and all a, topics. Yep, and a Q&A. Q&A. So go to uh, grc.com slash feedback to leave your questions. grc.com slash feedback. While you're there, pick up Spinrite, the world's best hard drive, maintenance and recovery utility. And of course, Steve's got lots of freebies there including 16 kilobit audio versions of this show for the bandwidth impaired, full transcription so you can read along as you listen, grc.com. We have the uh, high-quality audio plus video at our site, twit.tv slash sn. Of course, if you subscribe to one of those uh, in Stitcher or iTunes or if you use our apps and you listen every week, you won't miss a minute of security now. Thank you so much, Steve. We'll talk again next week right here. He's Thank shaving. You. He's shaving. <laughs>